So this is our third session on chastity. So just to repeat the obvious that this is a course on sexual morality, but because we are wanting to make this not just about do this, don't do that. We're wanting a broader picture of how to live and the virtue that habituates everything else that's in this course is the virtue of chastity. So today we are in particular looking at the section of those notes that is about, so we're on page 14 onwards, page 14, about growing in virtue uh, and then growing in particular our virtue in this course, chastity. Uh, so I've been picking up from what you've been saying that some of this in general isn't that familiar, so I'm going to go through this maybe slower than I might have. Um, in general, what does it mean to grow in virtue? How does that happen? So I want to think a little bit about the mechanics of that. Then a couple examples applying that to chastity. Um, and then if we have time, we might pause and think just seminar style, can you think of more examples of what to do to habituate a particular activity that would be a virtuous habit, uh, virtuous habitus in the mechanism we're going to outline here. So page 14. So I've got a, a few points here that I'm kind of structuring this around. The first point, repetition. So as I like to joke, what are the three things that causes a virtue to grow? Repetition, repetition, and repetition. Repetition causes growth in virtue. Now, I just want to distinguish two different ways that happens, natural versus supernatural virtues. So in the natural virtues, acts by repetition habituate certain responses. Uh, and as I've said before, Aristotle knew this, if it's a natural virtue, you don't need to know the Lord Jesus to have a natural virtue. Um, the athlete gives us the kind of standard paradigm of this. He does his own action, his own power, and his body, his whole being, just gets habituated to certain patterns. That it becomes possible for him to get up, put the right clothes on, leap out, do a five-mile run, and his whole body, his whole engagement with it, it's not much of an effort. And because he's done it many times, his body is just kind of ready for it, his psychology is ready for it, his whole self is habituated to it. It's easy for him because it's habituated into him. Not only easy, but joy goes with the performance of a successful action. But that's all by his own power. Supernatural or infused virtues, in these good acts remove the obstacles to grace. And so more of the virtue is infused. So the natural virtue is your power that is causing you to do the act and your power that's causing the growth in the virtue. Supernatural virtues, it's not your power, it's grace. You cooperate with that grace in the doing of the individual act. In the 
doing that act repeatedly, each time you do the act, um, summarizing simply, the doing of the act removes the obstacles to grace coming in. So you do the right act, you dispose yourself therefore for an increase in grace, more grace is infused, and therefore repeating the act infuses more of the infused supernatural grace. So both actions, repetition, whether it's a natural virtue or a supernatural virtue, repetition is what causes the growth. Is there such a thing as a natural man at the level of theological anthropology? How long ago did you do theological anthropology? I think I know the answer, but it's probably one of the distinctions. Well, there'd be many would say there is no such thing as pure nature. You only exist as a human being with a supernatural end. So the whole structuring of positing of a pure nature state and thus at one level purely natural virtues um, there aren't, aren't, there, there's never really a purely natural state because you only exist with a supernatural end. But at a practical level for our doing of moral theology, these classic distinctions actually are really useful for understanding what's going on. They're particularly useful for us as Christians, for us as pastors, to grasp at a deeper level what the supernatural is by contrasting with the natural. So by having the vision of the athlete aiming at a purely worldly goal and achieving it by his own power, I can understand how the supernatural is actually a lot of that same mechanism but with a whole different power structure going on. You cooperating with grace but grace being the primary agent you repeating, but that repetition disposing you to receive more, not just it being your own power. So lest you be thinking as I'm talking about natural, that there is such a thing purely theologically. Uh, there are arguments and there are ways of positing that. I don't think you need to be committed to the existence of a purely natural man in order to have this structure work in your moral theology. Have I managed to throw in a confusion and resolve it at the same time? No, as in it's not confusing. It's not confusing, okay. Um, second section here, how. How does repetition form virtue? So point A I say, Human nature is in a state of potency to form habitus. So briefly stated, your very existence is just ready to become habituated. What makes that habituation happen? Action. Okay, two analogies I give here. First analogy, the human body has body tissue that is in potency to develop into muscles. Exercising the body arm develops the biceps muscles. The muscle was already in potency to grow, but it needed action to stimulate it. 
Is that a pretty e easy analogy and pretty powerful in that context? The muscle doesn't grow unless action stimulates it, but it's already there. And our action being ready, to, our being being ready to be habituated in virtue or habituated in vice is likewise all in potency, but it needs action to trigger it into something. More specifically, I say, in the teenage years onwards, the male body has increased testosterone. And by analogy, grace is to the soul what testosterone is to the muscle, an added power to growth. I note, in reality, however, there is always some testosterone if there is to be growth, and many scholars dispute if there are truly any any truly natural virtues developed without grace, which is kind of what I was just touching on. Um, so like the six-year-old has testosterone, just doesn't have it at the level that the 16-year-old has it. Um, so this analogy partially works, partially doesn't. Um, or you might say, well, even in the natural virtue, even the natural virtues are only actually acquired by grace, if it's a good thing being done. So that's an analogy, the body. Potency to habitus. So structuring this at different levels of the human person. First, we have the natural inclinations in the human person to self-preservation, to sex and children, to truth, society, and God. Yeah, you were call these three basic inclinations in the human person what St. Thomas says yes you recall this vaguely rings a bell so this is the foundation of the natural law these basic inclinations more specifically we then have the human appetites the rational appetite and then the concupiscible and irascible powers of the sensitive appetite so these are more specific than just the general inclinations. More specific still, the passions which respond to perceived goods or evils. And I say are even more specific than the appetites. So altogether, these mean that the human person is in a state of potency. This is the, highlight the next line, to be habituated, to be inclined to more specific objects in virtues or in vices. So Pinkers summarizes, the inclinations are the seeds, he says, that blossom into the virtues. You read Pinkers firsthand? Some of? Okay. So he's probably the pivotal figure who, in the post-conciliar era, led a return to St. Thomas that wasn't just repeating the old preconciliar manuals, but somehow looking at the whole thing new and fresh, and sometimes saying, actually, a lot of the preconciliar manuals were articulating decadent scholastic distinctions that were never in St. Thomas, and so Pinker's is a whole renewal that's in many ways in continuity, but quite also radically different in what he's saying. Um, and I generally follow 
um, his school. Um, okay, so I say next, all the faculties of the human person have a readiness to be shaped by reason. Uh, I quote a scholar called Lombardo who says, by repeated acts, reason can shape the passions into habitus that resolve the various desires of the sense appetite and the will into stable dispositions. So resolve, so there's an implication there. You've got all these desires, the appetites, the will, needs some kind of resolution focusing. Action is what focuses all those things within you into a particular act. You do that same act repeatedly, it habituates you, gives you a steady disposition to it, a stable disposition to it. Then say in bold, summing this all together, acts are what form us, and reason directs our acts, and thus reason forms the habituses. Quoting St. Thomas directly, by repeated acts, a quality is formed in the passive and move power, and this quality is called a habitus. Did we, pre we previously define virtue, yes? Stable disposition to the good in concrete actions, concrete circumstances. Um, so there's a kind of Kantian use of the word virtue, where virtue is just a kind of vague being good. In St. Thomas and Aristotle, virtue is much more focused than that. So the Catechism defines virtue as a stable disposition to do the good in concrete circumstances. To repeat, a stable disposition to do the good in concrete circumstances. So there's some concrete circumstance that I have a stable disposition towards. So I come into this room and in this room, this concrete circumstance, I've got a pattern of certain actions that I've done many times and I just have a stable inclination to repeat those actions. So I kind of never walk in the back of the room. I just have an easy disposition to walk here. Um, all this fairly clear as I'm going through it? Okay, let's spell this out in a bit more detail, 2b. Still thinking the section two, how? How does a stable disposition get formed? So, 2b, I've titled this section, Achieving the end of an act causes growth in the corresponding virtue. So, every virtue has a corresponding act with a corresponding object. Yeah, you remember when you did moral theology, every action has an object, the object of an act. Each virtue has its own particular object. Each vice, likewise, has its own particular object. 
So when we're talking about um, achieving the end of an act, a particular object of an act, you aim at it, you achieve it, that achievement causes you to grow in the virtue that is that. So if the object of my act is perseverance, then I grow in the virtue of perseverance by doing it. If the object of my act is projecting to the back of the room, that's the object of my act, I do that many occasions and I grow in the stable virtue of projecting to the back of the room. And then whether I'm in this room or I'm in the chapel, St. Terebius, or I'm in the chapel, St. Joseph, if I have a stable disposition to the back of the room, that carries to all kinds of different rooms. Whereas if I, in my thinking, I'm not thinking the back of the room, but the back of this particular room, then that's only going to be a habitus that relates to this space. So how in my mind I grasp the object and specify it is going to change, among other things, whether that virtue, that habitus, translates to many different scenarios or only kind of to a very specific one. And if you think about what's important in your life, there are some things that are so important that actually habituating them to this particular circumstance, this particular room, is kind of worth investing the energy of focusing my attention right here. Um, but generally speaking, that wouldn't be the case. That it's useful to habituate ourselves in such a way that that also carries forward into other similar but not exactly the same circumstances. Okay, back to my notes here. I say, give the example, contemplation fostering love. Um, so, I've mapped out there, the will, the intellect, truth and delight. Did I talk through this with you already? No, that's fine. So I'll just go through this slowly. I don't want to say it slowly, but I've already done it last lecture. So I say the will moves the intellect to contemplate a truth. The intellect then contemplates that truth. And the intellect grasps it. When the intellect grasps a truth, it experiences delight. Yeah, so what does the, what is, the intellect is configured to truth. That's its whole thing. When it grasps truth, it grasps what it's all about, it, there's an experience of delight. And I say this delight rebounds, is experienced in the will. So the will increases in love for the truth contemplated. So I say this holds for all truth and all contemplation. This refers to contemplation in the broad sense, the, intellect, the intellect's simple grasp of an object. So I first give the example there of a married man carrying a photo of his wife. Gazing on the photo gives him immediate joy and increases his love for her. 
yeah, it's a standard thing for a guy. I mean, I suppose increasingly guys don't carry wallets, but still relatively standard, a guy carrying a wallet around with a photo of his wife in it. He sees the photo, he remembers his wife, he experiences joy in thinking of his wife. There's a habit loop there that is the same habit of contemplation fostering love. I say this holds especially for God, since the delight is greater. So the good I am contemplating in prayer is even greater than the good of a wife. So the delight to be experienced there in prayer is even greater than the delight of contemplating the photo of your wife. So I say that note per se, spiritual pleasures are greater than the sensible bodily pleasures. But the latter, the bodily, are more, St. Thomas says, vehement and are felt more immediately. Yes, yeah, so because the body is more immediate to us, those pleasures, the donut, impact on me in a more vehement way. But at the deeper level, the pleasures of the spirit are per se greater. So when we do engage those, they actually have a more transformative, habituating uh, effect. So last year, um, Father Brennan made a number of his spiritual conferences on the importance of mental prayer, uh, how there's nothing more important to your growth and sanctity than mental prayer. He said it a couple of times in different talks. Um, structurally, following St. Thomas, there's nothing that will cause you to grow in love of God more than contemplative prayer, mental prayer. So therefore, in the seminary, our benchmarks, we, through the years, uh, different stages, that you need to have habituated within yourself a pattern of mental prayer. If this structure of contemplation fostering love is going to embed itself in your life and in your priesthood. So that relates to prayer, but it also relates to the very structure of virtue. You grasp the end, the object you're aiming at, it triggers a delight, it confirms you in love of that thing you were contemplating aiming at. Okay, so now I'm doing a Dr. Faulkner and bringing in fancy books to show you. Okay, so for my own personal formation this year, uh, I have given myself the pattern the last two years. If I'm making you guys form formation goals, that I set myself formation goals for the year. Um, my academic formation this year is I'm growing in the knowledge of virtue theory and habitual, um, some of the secular analyses of habit. Um, so one of the mo most famous is by this chap, Charles Duig. I don't actually know if that's, anyone know how his surname is pronounced? It's a very popular book out there. Uh, 
very high ranking on the Amazon sales charts, utterly secular, but an awful lot of scientific analysis of what a habit is in the structure of the brain, how different bits of the brain light up um, in response to certain activities, habits, how does that happen? So they do this with rats, they stick little things in the rat's brain and then the rat running through the maze gets certain rewards or punishments um, by repetition. They see what's happening, which parts of the brain light up. I'm in the midst of um, studying a guy who lost the ability to remember new stuff, but he didn't lose the ability to form new habits because somehow that is a different part of the brain. So his wife was able to walk him around certain places in repeated patterns, so activities he would do again and again and again, and activities that were done in such a way that there was a reward, a satisfaction in them being done successfully. And the part of the brain that builds in habit built that into him without him being able to remember what he'd done. So one of the examples it quotes is an occasion when he walks out of the house and goes for a walk by himself without his wife taking him around the route they take every morning. And he manages to go all around the neighborhood following the exact same route and comes back into his own house without being able to say which house he lives in, which house number. Um, habit can be embedded in us, even without memory. Um, now, if you have memory, then what is habit doing is giving you a steady inclination to something. One of the things evolutionary theory seems to be indicating is how does that serve the animal well, thinking is a very complex process, uses up a lot of energy. You, your brain doesn't want to be using energy if it doesn't have to be. So if it gets something working on a good usual habit, it embeds it as a habit and you don't need to think of it anymore. It just kicks in at certain stages and says, okay, we're in a habit loop now. And without needing to do all the cognitive chunk, 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 chunk thinking, you just go on the habit loop. Um, so how does that happen? That's what this little section here is about. And how many of you, um, oh, brain freeze. Um, the Augustine Way course that Father Brennan has been doing with the house the last three years. How many of you have been on that? Okay, I would strongly recommend You've got a year and a half left. Um, it uses an awful lot of modern science, including the science in this habit loop stuff. Um, okay, so section 2C, the dynamics of habit. I say contemporary theories of habit formation essentially reinforce St. Thomas, obviously not using the same terminology. And, St. Thomas doesn't know these different areas of the brain, but St. Thomas does talk about things like humors of the body, um, that the soul can't act without the brain. Um, 
St. Thomas is fully aware that there is a bodily dimension of stuff going on in you that the soul engages with, even though he doesn't have the terminology of the, to refer to the hypothalamus of the brain. Um, okay, so Charles Duig, The Power of Habit, talks about the habit loop. So let's write this down. Um, losing space. Q. Routine. Reward. And you get a loop. If you're remembering the detail of the Augustan Way terminology, that doesn't use the word routine, that uses the word response, which in some ways is more obvious for something that doesn't have a process, but the thing with routine is it indicates there's a whole long thing going on, a routine rather than an act, a single action. Okay, back to my notes here. The brain is constantly looking to save energy by forming shortcuts in habit routines. The experience of a reward, which contrasts with St. Thomas's analysis of delight and pleasure, causes the brain to remember an activity it's just performed. So you do something, it was a thing that worked out well, you get some reward, the brain thinks, okay, let's see if we can remember that because we're going to want to do that again. The activity that was previously performed is remembered as a routine which relates to the notion of habitus. The cue is what the brain recalls as what started the activity that led to the reward. So Thomistically, in this way, habitus embeds reason, the brain, into the passions. Thus, to form good habits, we need to give rewards to good behavior. Identify cues that trigger the routines, the habits. And to counter evil habits, we need to identify and avoid the cues that trigger evil routines, habits. So the Augustine Way Chastity Course, I say currently used in the PCJ, uses the above methodology and, and more. Um, so um, I was thinking this morning, my alarm went off on my watch at 5.20. Um, thinking of this lecture, I was thinking that's a very obvious cue that my body hears and it triggers something. Now, if I can kind of build into the first part of my morning routine something of a fairly immediate sense of reward, then that will trigger a loop that gets me out of bed easily. Whereas the more I make my first morning experience painful, 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 um, it's really, there's nothing in that whole system that's easing me into it. Um, in this book, the, one of the fascinatingly e simple rewards was this guy would pick up um, a box of cereal uh, and at the bottom, I can't remember exactly, it said something like, well done. Um, which isn't a huge reward, but the body thinks, oh yeah. Um, 
And if that happens every time you lift up the box of cereal, then you think, oh, well, that's the one that I should be doing. Um, so I'm going to stick up a post-it note on my, on my mirror. So when I get out of the bed, having succeeded through the alarm, it's going to say, well done, you got out of bed. <laughs> um, so the process here is we need to think, what are the cues? What can be a reward I attach to the cue so that the whole routine of behavior gets embedded as a habitus? Okay, over the page. Sixteen. Now I'm wanting to connect this with what I've talked about already, namely the passions. I say a passion. A passion is a movement of the sensitive appetite that inclines us to act concerning a perceived good or evil. I ask the question, can we train the passions, this bodily dimension of us? And I say St. Thomas and the Catechism and most of post-medieval theology say yes. Um, but there's a counter theory, point one here. The notion that virtues are mere self-control. I say this is not the opinion of this course, of what I'm trying to give you. I say a quasi-Kantian view of virtue sees it as merely self-control. I want to do evil, but my will commands myself to do good. That what is a man of virtue? The man of virtue has strengthened his will to do the good. But my passions are always to be controlled, not followed. And I say the now unfashionable and good Catholic circles view of St. Bonaventure likewise said, virtues can be seated in the will and in the intellect but not seated in the passions themselves. Pay attention if this is what your thesis is going to be. This is the trigger contrast. Um, so in, in that theory, whether it's Kant or whether it's Bonaventure, um, basically you can't train or form the passions. You can just override them. And what is virtue is just growing in the strength of your will. St. Thomas, you, there are virtues in the will, so th and you can grow those, but there's also the capacity, the bodily dimension, the passions of you can also be habituated to move you to the good. And I would say pretty obviously, this modern studies on habits kind of confirm that notion that there is something at the bodily level of us that can be habituated not just habituating your will. So the opinion two on that page, virtues as integrating the passions, not just overriding them. So St. Thomas taught that virtues can be seated in the sensitive appetite, not just in the will and intellect. The passions themselves can be formed so that their own proper acts direct to the good. Then I've got some bits quoting the Catechism on this point, just because I want to kind of articulate that this isn't just some weird theory I'm giving you. This is actually what's in the Catechism, the new Catechism, as old people like me still call it. Um, so the Catechism 
teaches an anthropology of man having a sensitive appetite that results in passions. So sensitive appetite, passions, both articulated clearly in the Catechism. Teaches that the passions themselves move us to goods. It's not just the will that moves you. So quoting the Catechism, moral perfection consists in man being moved to the good not only by his will alone, but also by his sensitive appetite. Passions are movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. And with that, Catechism teaches that the passions can be formed into virtues or vices. Directly quoting, emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. Say, so in short, the Catechism decisively sides with St. Thomas. Okay, so now I've got the next page and a half, three examples trying to map out what I've said the last page and a half. So breakfast example. So every day I have exactly one half cup of oats. Um, so by repetition, having this amount daily, I form my passions to look as, at such a portion size as normal. So, yeah, the first time I did that, I measured out, in some sense, how much, what's right for a man of my age, activity level, whatever. I also read the size of the packet in terms of what it said was normal. Um, but in, I thought through, to begin with, a measure. But I've repeated that every day. See, now, even without a measuring cup, I would feel satisfied with this portion size and eat this portion size. I no longer need the precise measuring cup. Reward, there's the satisfaction of breakfast. The cue is my arrival in the refectory. And the routine is just the kind of making and eating of the oats. That I get the oats in a certain part of the refectory, I put them into a certain size bowl. This is why I get really worked up if the right spoon isn't in the right place, because then my whole routine thing gets dislodged. Um, I've integrated a measure made by my intellect, a decision in my will, and a movement in my passions. That I say has become habituated to this measure by repetition. And the last bullet point there, I say, I, this is not just my will consistently overriding my passions every morning. And it's also not me rethinking every morning, hmm, I wonder how many oats should I have to eat for breakfast? Or what shall I eat for breakfast? No, I've kind of made a decision. Me, 52 years old, what's a healthy diet? What's a healthy breakfast? This is what I'm going to do. a habit loop that has a cue, has a reward, has a routine. Fairly self-evident as an example. Okay, now two examples of chastity. So, example one, scenario. I'm talking to a beautiful but scantily clad woman. So it's the summer months and you as a priest, whether it's well, yeah, some woman is talking to you and she's, she's just not wearing very much. 
and she's wanting to talk about something. Well, in my intellect, I judge in the negative that it's inappropriate for my eyes to wander around her bare flesh. I judge in the positive that looking her in the eyes as I talk to her will focus me on her as a person and not just as a piece of flesh. I think lots of us would observe this as a really valuable way to just help ourselves be changed. Looking in the eyes, I'm engaging with a person then, not just a body. In my will, I decide. So I judge in my intellect, I decide in my will that this is what I will do whenever I'm situated with a scantily clad woman. So the cue, I see a scantily clad woman. The routine, I direct my eyes to her face. The reward, the spiritual satisfaction of knowing I've avoided sin, and the lack of evil satisfaction in the contrary habit. I know that the more restraining nature of this reward makes it harder to utilize. Yeah, so there are some rewards that are very physical, very immediate, very vehement. It's kind of easy to habituate those. This is a real reward, knowing spiritually I've avoided sin, knowing spiritually I've done a good act. But it is a real reward. And so I can use that to habituate myself. So by repetition, I habituate my passions to not think this is odd or heroic, to increasingly not resist my will, and eventually to spontaneously look women in the eyes. So again, this is not just my will consistently overriding my passions each time. Comments on this as an example? As a habit loop, cue, routine, reward, So we need to think in advance, what is the cue? What is the thing that comes to me? What's going to be the routine I aim to consistently enact whenever I have that cue? What's the reward that's going to somehow be attached to that? And there would be a potential for a very external reward of I give myself a chocolate each time I succeed in, you know, so that my body will experience that and it will, in my brain, something get embedded. Um, so if we want to get certain things embedded, mapping out rewards is, is a way to do that. Okay, second example, custody of the eyes. We, we mapped up, these two examples weren't in the notes the first time I taught this course. Um, the, the guys themselves were, th anyway, so first scenario. Uh, here in the PCJ through the summer months, I see the bare flesh of a scantily clad female jogger running through the PCJ grounds. Yeah, my first year here, there was one particular woman that would be quite frequent here. You can see her going by. I'm here in the classroom and she's running along the road over there. Um, in my intellect, 
I judge that averting my eyes is an appropriate response to this context of bare flesh. In my will, I decide that this is what I will do whenever I see that particular scantily clad female drugger running along the road over there. Q, seeing bare flesh in the corner of my eye, routine, averting my eyes, reward, as above, the spiritual satisfaction of knowing I've avoided sin and the lack of evil satisfaction in the contrary habit. Um, so by repetition, I habituate my passions so it all just seems natural. Whereas in reverse, I see the woman and I look at her at length and there is a different reward, a different activity, a different habit loop that gets habituated there, uh, a vice, not, not a virtue. Comments? Okay, over the page. 18. Um, I'm going to guess what you said the last couple lectures. This page is going to be new to you. Um, so. What I'm trying to indicate here on this page is, even at a bodily level of the level of your passions, you see something and know it even before your intellect makes a reasoned judgment. That I see the coconut cream pie and I know what it is at the level of my passions even before I'm knowing it intellectually. Um, Okay, passions, knowing the good and spontaneously recognizing it. As a result of training, i.e. repetition, the passions spontaneously recognize the good, i.e. the good in a specific concrete context. I say each good needs specific training, specific forming. Each virtue has its own specific object. And what virtue enables is a semi-automatic recognition of good deeds as opposed to evil deeds, i.e. less reflection is needed to realize what's right and what's wrong. Okay, I now have a little quote here drawing, this is quoting St. Thomas, who in turn is quoting Aristotle. Uh, David, could you read that block quote for us? There are two ways of judging. Okay, let's think back to my oats for breakfast. Um, at the level of knowledge, I know what oats are. I read on the package the 
nutritional content, the right energy level, the balance of what is the suitable amount for me to have in the morning, I know at the level of knowledge. But also at the level of inclination, I judge by inclination, just I'm inclined to see that half cup size and I'm just inclined to look at it and it looks right. So I judge by inclination that just by repetition, it, I'm inclined to see that amount as right. I can also know by number crunching, judging by intellect, that it's right two ways of making the same evaluation. The inclination obviously is going to make it much quicker, more immediate. I don't need to do that number crunching every morning. St. Thomas has two ways of judging. So at the level of your passions, at the level of virtue, you just know stuff in this semi-immediate, semi-spontaneous manner. So I'm not walking around all the time making a completely fresh thinking things through. Quoting the Catechism, by his emotions, man intuits the good and suspects evil. Intuits. Doesn't number crunch it through, he just intuits it. And I say, by repetition, the judgment of the intellect becomes the spontaneous intuition of the passions. That's kind of the key thing to note there. The judgment of the intellect becomes the spontaneous intuition of the passions. So in bold, I summarize that by saying the virtuous person is directed to the good both by his passions and by his will and intellect. And that's when things become, say, joy and ease. Virtue means that the specific good acts become easy, bring a certain amount of joy, because my passions and my intellect and will are just pushing me to the same thing. Is this familiar to you? Or at least clear? Clear but not familiar. Okay, the next page, 19, uh, is kind of the last full page I want to get through today. Um, so actually we're okay time-wise. Um, the key thing here is trying to identify exactly what I am choosing in an activity because repetition is going to embed that activity into myself. So which activity am I choosing? First thing at the top of the page, the intensity of that. So the intensity of a habitus. So say any habitus is of a certain strength or intensity to use the language of St. Thomas. He says, acts of an equal or greater intensity of that habitus increase the intensity, whereas lacks of a lesser intensity diminish the intensity of the habitus. 
So let's pause and think of our athlete again. Um, in the gym, you work out with your bicep curls and you're lifting 50 kilograms each time. Um, 50 pounds, shall we say? <laughs> uh, I obviously do this a lot. Uh, um, I do that many times over many months, many years. My muscles are of a certain size. Then I spend a month not lifting 50, but only lifting 20. My muscles will get smaller. An act of reduced intensity and the habitus becomes smaller. St. Thomas says something even similar happens with, with charity. So I have within me a certain habitus intensity level with the virtue of charity. I am loving to a certain degree. If I just ratchet that down a bit, and I'm still loving to others, but not as intensely loving, my habitus of charity will diminish likewise. So I can cause my habitus to diminish in all kinds of activities by doing lesser acts. Whereas when I push myself beyond what I'm inclined to already, to an even greater excellence, intensity of an act of that same habitus, I grow the habitus even more. And that works whether it's a good habitus or a bad habitus. By increasing the intensity in an individual case, I grow the habitus more in its level of intensity. Now, why am I saying that? So it's not just about repeating the action, but repeating the intensity with which it's done that's going to make a difference to what habitus you've got. The athlete in the gym lifting the weights, a really easy analogy. Um, the level of charity with which we do something, I think we can grasp that, it, but it's a little less easy to quantify. So the way I greet my brother seminarian and smile at him as I sit down to breakfast, I can do that with different degrees of concern, love for him. The more that is done in a loving manner, not just a thing I do in the morning, that's going to grow the charity within me. Okay, next little section here, repeating the correct act. This whole section here, the correct act. What is the act I'm doing? Let's say, whatever we repeat is formed into our character. For example, the act of self-control can form a habitus of repressing our emotions rather than forming them. So what's the action then? The action is Repressing, repressing, repressing. Um, if it's a bad passion, it's better to repress it than to run with it. Um, you know, I want to uh, kill that guy next to me who's singing that duff note. Um, better to repress that than run with it. Um, but better yet 
to somehow reform it into something else. So I say the action needs to be properly directed. This is the key two things here, in both its interior and exterior. So the rest of this page, I'm trying to spell out the difference from the interior and the exterior dimension. So I brought my breviary in this morning as if it was show and tell uh, to have as an example. So saying the breviary, the breviary is the exterior act. Yeah, I as a priest, I do not like saying the breviary. Uh, I always say the breviary. 23 years, I've been very faithful to the breviary. I get very little joy out of it, but I do it. The mechanics, everything on this page, praise the Lord, everything on that page, praise the Lord, I get through it. The exterior I get done. What is the interior that is matching up with that exterior act? If I'm honest, most of the time I'm doing it, it's just an act of perseverance. I persevere, I persevere, I persevere. Is that a bad act, perseverance? No, it's not really the purpose of the breviary. Um, I think it has caused me over the years to have a certain strength of the virtue of perseverance, but that's not the purpose of the breviary. Um, um, it can be an act of obedience. I don't know if you, how many priests you know that what they talk about when they talk about the breviary is just kind of the church requires this and I do it. Um, every time I'm doing it, I obey the church, I obey the church, I obey the church. The interior that is matching up with that exterior, what is the act? It's an act of obedience. So two very different interiors with the same exterior. What is it supposed to be? What is the interior supposed to be that kind of matches up with what the exterior the church is kind of giving me? Supposed to be what St. Thomas would call an act of religion. In my notes there, I've called an act of ecclesial worship. Ecclesial worship includes obedience, includes perseverance, includes lots of things. But when that is the interior action matching up with the exterior, then the object of the act has been properly specified. Final example I give there, do I, yes, pride. So I'm there in my church saying my breviary. Betty over there is just muttering her rosary. I'm a priest, she, pff. yeah, it's become the interior is just an, is an act of pride. So the same exterior as perfectly performed in each of these different examples I've given you is now an act of pride, is forming a vice within me by doing it once that way, again that way, again that way, because Betty's always there. Um, so just getting it right at the exterior level is nowhere near enough. The interior that is matching up with it 
has to be correct. How do I get that interior correct? In my intellect, what St. Thomas calls the intentional object. Have I written that up there already? Yeah, that was last lecture. The intentional object. I specify that clearly in my mind as what I'm choosing. And that's what gets habituated. That is, morally speaking, what the act is. Comments on that example? Nice clerical example, yeah. We can all relate to that one pretty easily. Um, Okay, reading through what I've said there, um, reading the breviary in that section, I've said, the will is grasping different objects in each above example. Each different object relates to a different virtue. Repetition of the act, not merely the material act, but the interior, fosters the corresponding virtue. And I say each virtue has its own specific object. Okay, different example. Averting my eyes from a bikini and bare flesh. So what is the act? Physically, the act is averting my eyes. Yeah. Interiorly, what is it? It can be an act of self-control. That's what I always do. I have self-control. It has nothing to do with how I relate to her. It's all about me. It's an act of self-control. Or it could be an act of respect for the person of the woman, not just her body. If that's what I'm thinking as I avert my eyes, I am respecting this woman in front of me. That's going to engender a whole different habitus within me. Oh dear, yes, okay. <laughs> okay. A different act again here, of physically averting my eyes, but an act of love for God who wishes me to use my eyes differently. Yeah, that would be a different thing to be thinking as I'm averting my eyes. It would habituate me in a different activity. Those three examples are not in opposition to each other. You, you could have some elements of each of those present. Sometimes in different contexts, one motivates us more than the other. Um, my point in this context is what is being habituated into you, it varies with what you in the intentional object are choosing to do at this moment. Just choosing a thing at the exterior level doesn't make it a habitus. You've got to engage with this in a way that isn't just the external mechanics. And if you think for yourself subjectively, what is the thing that most powerfully engages me? That's going to be the thing that's going to embed it most easily. So if respecting the woman 
doesn't motivate you as powerfully as love for God in that example, well then maybe to embed that routine more easily, choosing the love of God might work better. More deeply into what we're talking about in chastity though, respect for the woman is actually a pretty more immediate good to be realized in that sphere. Completely different example. A married man hearing his wife say that she has a headache tonight. Yeah, we don't, I'm not going to spell out the details there. She, she's saying, got a headache tonight. What is the act he engages with in response to hearing her say that? Could be an act of impatient muttering. How does he always respond when she says that? Impatient muttering. Could be an act of love and concern for her. He hears that. What is his response? He chooses love and concern for her. Or it could be an act of mere self-restraint. How does he respond? He chooses to restrain himself now. So how he engages interiorly changes which habitus is formed in him. So again, not just the exterior we're concerned with, how he engages with it is going to be choosing a different act, forming a different habitus. In all of those, well no, one of those examples of vice, two of them different virtues. Last example on that page, the example of social drinking. So my friend, Father Victor, I phone him up and say, do you want a glass of bourbon? Now, why am I inviting him over for a glass of bourbon? Is it because I want a drink and I'm not going to drink alone? So he is just an excuse for me to have a drink. Or is it, um, just want to chat and having a drink together is a thing to do while we do that. Social drinking, is it about drinking? Is it about social? What the act is, the material of the act doesn't specify it enough to describe what's going on. So there are lots of different things I do. How I engage with the act makes it a different act forms a different habitus within me. Okay, before turning the page, um, throw me out a different example of acts with a certain material and a variety of interiors that are there for different acts. Yeah. Yeah, okay, go on. That, so that is the exterior. Right. So the interior could be engaging the class to learn, or it could be, well, I have to be here, and you kind of struggle through it. Or you can look at this as an example of growing love of God in your neighbor. Right, right. So, yeah, it's a core subject. I've got to do it. I won't get that color around my neck unless I go through that class to. Um, or, yeah, there's all kinds of other ways to engage with it. Dieting 
Go on. Could be for health reasons, could be for penance reasons, um, could be for legitimate health reasons or just vanity for anorexia as well, I suppose. Okay, all of which, same exterior action and could be exactly the same exterior action in terms of the measure, but what interiorly is engaging with it makes it a different act and by repetition forms a different habitus. Okay, some of this we can engage with in our mind even without being in a specific circumstance. So, um, one of my favorite authors is Don Scupoli, his classic work, The Spiritual Combat. Uh, St. Francis de Sales said it's even better than the imitation of Christ. St. Francis de Sales carried the imitation of Christ in his pocket his, for 20 years. He thought this book was so good to continually read. In that book, he talks about the spiritual combat growing in various virtues, diminishing various vices. He describes the scenario in which I've got something I want to resist and I conjure it up in my mind in order to find a way of making my passions awaken differently. So that seminarian next to me who sings all the duff notes, I remind completely outside of the chapel, I call that situation to mind and I think of him and engage with the situation in a way that awakens different passions. I think of all the things that are actually quite nice about him, uh, quite lovable about him, um, quite admirable about him. And far away from the chapel, far away from the trigger of the immediate duff note, I'm having passions awaken um, that then when I go into that exact scenario again, I've habituated myself to have those more appropriate passions awaken. Don Scapoli says there is one sphere of activity that to grow in virtue, to resist vice with, we must never conjure up in our mind, never try to retrain our passions in this way. The only response is to flee, and that is the sins of the flesh. Conjuring up an image of a beautiful woman in order to then resist. Uh, many saints make the same. That doesn't work. Just don't think about it. Flee. Um, so on page 22 of these notes, I've got the long block quote from uh, Dom Scupoli, his method for acquiring virtue um, in which he describes all of that. Um, which in many different ways is kind of summarizing what we've gone through in class today. So what have we talked about the last three lectures? We've been talking about chastity as a virtue, talking about how all these different powers, joys, sorrows within you are there, how you can grow in virtue, how you can habituate yourself to have 
good responses, the virtue um, corresponding to those activities. You grow in that by repetition, but it's got to be a repetition of the correct act, which therefore needs a certain amount of intellectual thinking to know what it is I am choosing in each particular sphere of activity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.